Hello, everyone. This is Noah. And I'm Simon. And welcome to the Resolve Podcast. We're your resource for all things mental health, academic success, and personal growth. Devoted to helping students thrive and build the resilience to succeed in school and in life. In this week's episode, I speak with Sherry Van Dyke about everything emotion regulation. Sherry happens to be my supervisor and is also a social worker who has been working with clients with severe mental health problems since 2000. With extensive experience in a hospital as well as community setting, Sherry now sees clients in private practice and provides consultation and training internationally to other clinicians. Sherry has had extensive training in dialectical behavior therapy or DBT and mindfulness and has been providing DBT-informed therapy to individuals and groups since 2004. She is the author of several books that focus on helping readers learn DBT skills and apply them to a variety of mental health problems. One of her most popular books, published in 2013, is called DBT Made Simple, with the aim of making the therapy more accessible to clients and clinicians. Her latest book, The DBT Skills Workbook for Teen Self-Harm, was released in March 2021. We hope that our conversation together can in some small way help you with emotion regulation. We are live for another episode of the Resolve podcast. I'm very excited to be speaking with Sherry Van Dyke. Sherry is both a clinical supervisor, a therapist, an author, and instead of me trying to fill in those details, let's hear from you. So hello, Sherry. Hey, Noah. How's it going? It's a pleasure to speak with you here. Mm-hmm. Usually I'm speaking with Sherry about clients getting help for my supervision, but this is a lot of fun as well. So I'm very mm-hmm. excited. So thank you so much for coming. It's my pleasure. You are a bit of an expert or a lot of an expert on something called DBT, dialectical behavior therapy. Right. And I'm hopefully going to be able to pick your brain on one part of the DBT skills that are so valuable. So Tell us a little bit about DBT, generally speaking. Dialectical behavior therapy is a treatment that was created by Marsha Linehan and her team in the U.S. uh, Marsha is a psychologist. She started looking at working with really intensely emotionally dysregulated individuals back in the late 70s and early 80s from a traditional cognitive behavior therapy perspective. And that didn't work so well for that population that, that Marsha and her team were working with. The emotion dysregulation was just so intense for some people. They were finding that CBT, which is quite often a very effective treatment for people and a very common treatment, but for some people, CBT doesn't work very well. Um, and so Marsha and her team started looking at making changes to CBT to help it be more acceptable and to help individuals learn to manage emotions more effectively with different aspects. So they started looking at bringing in acceptance techniques, mindfulness, validation techniques. One of the main differences of between DBT and CBT is that DBT has a real emphasis on helping people to accept themselves as they are, understanding the difficulties they're struggling with and accepting those difficulties, and then helping them to make changes through skills. So DBT is a very skills-focused treatment, you know, using lots of different skills in different 
areas or domains of an individual's life. Mindfulness, for example, a lot of people know a lot about mindfulness nowadays. Mindfulness skills help people to live more in the present moment and bring acceptance to their experiences. Distress tolerance skills is another module of skills in DBT where we help people learn to tolerate distress, get through crisis situations, not act on urges that would have problematic uh, negative consequences and so on. Interpersonal effectiveness skills, of course, are the skills that help us to be more effective in relationships. And the last set of skills, which I know is kind of where our focus is today, is the emotion regulation skills. So those are the skills where we help individuals look at identifying their emotions more accurately and then learning how to express those emotions in healthier ways, how to tolerate having those emotional experiences because emotions can be very distressing for individuals. You know, we kind of, we do a lot in emotion regulation. So I'll kind of leave it there because we'll get a little bit more into specifics momentarily, but that's kind of DBT in a nutshell. Sure. So it's very hands-on. The skills are very practical. A lot of people have this vague sense of, I want to be more emotionally healthy. Mm -hmm. or I want to be more present in my life. And part of that is really important. Those are great values to want to have. And I think what is so amazing and perhaps practical and meaningful for people to use DBT is that there's a whole set of techniques that you can practice right away to see results. And again, you don't want to have too much of an agenda of the results, but there's a lot of really good skills that you can, that you can incorporate pretty quickly into your life. And you've made your whole, that's, you know, a big part of your career. Mm-hmm. You've written numerous books on the subject, especially as well for teens. I think the most recent one was the DBT uh, skills for self-harm. Was that? Yes. Yeah, that's right. DBT skills workbook for teen self-harm. For teen self-harm. You've also yeah. read DBT made simple. Mm-hmm. This has been a big part of your practice, teaching DBT skills, doing DBT in therapy. I'm sure applying DBT to yourself. Yep. So <laughs> It's you love it. You love it a yes. lot. Yes. And DBT is is kind of has kind of become my life. <laughs> <laughs> DBT is life. And you know, for myself, just so people are aware, I also use it a lot in my practice. And I really believe that when developing curriculums into schools and to other places, we've got this encyclopedia of skills that we can help people use to make improvements in their life. And I wanna I wanna get into it. I, I, there's so much. You know, everybody who's looked at the DBT skills workbook, the OG one, um, and the most recent one published in 2015, it's, you know, hundreds of pages, uh, unbelievable amounts of skills. Mm -hmm. And so let's focus in, let's zero in, let's talk a little bit about emotion regulation. So I want to start off by just asking a big question, and maybe there's not an easy answer to that, but Mm -hmm. what are emotions the way that you understand them? Yeah. So, I mean, there are researchers still, you know, kind of looking at what is an emotion versus a feeling versus a mood state versus everything else. So I may have a little bit of the technical language, you know, I use my own language. I don't, I'm I'm not a researcher. I work with, you know, clients and real life stuff. So I work with what works best. What's the real life definition? Yeah. So let's get into real life. The DBT definition is what we're looking at here. So in DBT, we talk about emotions being a full system response. So an emotion, now we, we often use the word emotion interchangeably with feeling. 
and I don't have a problem with that. I don't get stuck too much on the semantics as long as we're still referring to an emotion or a feeling being a full system response. So in other words, it's yes, that feeling aspect that we're referring to when we say feeling, I feel angry, anger is a feeling, for example, there is that felt aspect to anger. But there's also the, the physical sensation component to anger. So, you know, when you think about when you feel angry, your heart usually starts to race a little bit, or you might get a little shaky, your muscles get more tense. So those are the physical sensations. We have angry thoughts at the same time. So there's an, the um, cognitive component to an emotion where... You know, with anger, for example, we tend to get very judgmental. Uh, we're thinking, you know, things shouldn't be this way, or this is ridiculous, this is awful, this shouldn't be happening, those kinds of thoughts. And, and there's that felt component of anger as well. So there, it's just, it's a full, uh, you know, there's, there's body language, there's facial expression. There, it's just the, the whole body system gets involved when we're feeling an emotion. So that's why, I mean, we commonly refer to it as a feeling. It's kind of a misnomer because it's a lot more than just the feeling part, but hopefully you get the gist from that. <laughs> yeah, well, it seems like it's a descriptor. So anger is the experience of a certain set of biological, physiological changes in the body, mm -hmm. a series of cognitive like thoughts, interpretations, yep. Yep. usually triggered by, by an event of some kind. Yep. Yeah. Um, um, important. Yeah. I'll just yeah. pause there for a second because a lot of people don't realize that events can be external or internal. So there could be something that happens within ourselves that actually triggers that emotion. Right. Uh, so you know, a thought that pops into our head or a memory or image or even a body sensation can actually trigger an emotion. Right. So all that's going on, it's, there's some sort of interpretive, some sort of triggered event, internal, external, something going on, physiological changes that might flood the body, mm -hmm. the cognitive dimension that's coming up, interpretations, thoughts, assumptions, beliefs, all these kind of things swirling around. Mm -hmm. And then... So that's all happening inside. And then there's a desire of, of some kind to, to, to act in some way. Emotions often come along with urges. I don't know that I would say they always come with urges because I'm dialectical and I don't like to go with those absolutes. But right. <laughs> yeah, but often urges would be um, a part of an emotional experience as well. Right. So and then and so that's so that's what so in, in a sense, emotions are a whole series of things going on in, yeah. in the body and in the mind. Yeah. that we then call and say, this is that. What is emotion regulation? So emotion regulation is when we have the capacity to, to an extent at least, choose the emotions that we're experiencing. So we have some influence over the emotions we're, we're having. We, we get to choose what we're going to do with those emotions, how we're going to behave as a result of the feelings we're experiencing, and so on. So instead of just letting the emotion control us or drive us, instead of, so like an emotion dysregulation, this is when people are emotion driven, where they're dependent on their mood state, where, you know, they might become either under controlled, where there's a lot of kind of acting out in an emotional way. So for example, individuals who lose their temper and they're lashing out at people around them, or um, you know, when you hear about folks who are engaging in self-harming behaviors or aggression towards others, or 
clients who, when we're working with a client with severe depression and they're stuck in bed all day, that would be, you know, a more under controlled client where the emotion is very apparent and, and big, like it's just a, you know, big feelings versus an under an over controlled person. So this, a, a lot of people don't realize that emotion dysregulation can also happen in an over-controlled way, where there's a lack of expression, a lack of engagement with emotion, so a lack of awareness of what the emotion is that's happening right now. And so this is, uh, you know, kind of emotions turned inward is kind of how I think of this, right? So emotion dysregulation can happen in a lot of different ways. The bottom lines with emotion regulation is that we're naming the emotion accurately. As Dan Siegel likes to say, if we can't name it, we can't tame it, right? So kind of naming the emotion accurately is the first step to emotion regulation. And then we're able to choose the, the ways that we want to express that emotion and what we want to do with that emotion in ways that are healthy and effective for us. So in other words, ways that aren't contributing to the maintenance and the ongoing um, emotion uh, and maybe even making the emotion bigger or acting in ways that are contributing to other strong, painful emotions. Um, so again, like self-harm where there's severe negative consequences that lead to shame and so on. Right. Yeah. So we have, so we have two main issues that are going on with emotion regulation, if it is an issue, which is number one is that there's too much emotion flooding the system or, mm -hmm. and, or that that's leading to ways of interacting with the world based on that response. So having urges and desires to do things or not do things. So if someone's really angry, desire to lash out mm -hmm. in a seemingly what appears to be an uncontrollable way, somebody feeling depressed, the desire to withdraw Mm -hmm. and 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 feeling like it's the whole world is i can't i can't do anything so that's a strong emotional response and mm -hmm. then there's something that's more muted which is a person that can't access their emotions and therefore don't have the wisdom of what their emotions are teaching them is that yeah can't access or have really limited access to yeah i mean it's kind of on a spectrum and right. in both regards right yeah right and and the limited access is that so, so maybe we'll typically say that in common languages like suppressing or not wanting to experience or to feel it? Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, and just to be clear, though, it's usually not a conscious process, right? It's usually an unconscious thing that's happening. So when we say suppressing, it's, you know, or, or avoiding or ignoring or whatever, it's usually happening in an, in an unconscious way. Right. It, for the person with, with two, let's talk for a second for the person with that can't access or is, mm -hmm. or is having a very difficult time accessing, what are they losing out on? Meaning they're not lashing mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. They're not having inappropriate emotional responses that might not fit with their, what's, what's good for their life. Mm -hmm. So what's the problem? So it's a great question. Part of the problem is that it's not just limited to the painful emotions, but that there's often a limited capacity to experience the pleasure in life as well. Um, so that is, I would say, one of the biggest problems. But then also think about, you know, our relational capacities and how our emotions influence our abilities to relate to others. So if we're not connecting to our emotions, we're going to struggle quite often connect to connect with other people meaningfully in relationships. You know, feeling emotions ourselves is what allows us to have empathy for others. 
is what allows others to recognize that we need support and help at times, for example, if we're feeling sad or grieving and those kinds of things. So there can definitely be, I know it's a good question and a lot of people will say that, well, I don't want to have my feelings, they're too strong. Or what's the problem if, you know, doesn't, isn't being in that state then of, of not feeling emotions, wouldn't that make life easier? But, you know, if you think of a robot, think of, think of Dr. Spock, if, <laughs> if you want to get old school, Right. And think of, you know, the the uh, limitations that that can lead to. So it does have negative consequences still. Yeah. And I and I think that when we look at both sides and we're going to get to the excessive side, the sort of when people have emotions that are too strong, that lead to unhealthy behaviors for themselves on the first on the side of not having enough. It it's not necessarily that it's always bad, but you lose you lose flavor of being a, you know, Emotions aren't necessarily bad all the time. If somebody is, you know, heckling you constantly over and over again, and you don't have an emotional response, be like, get lost, leave me alone. You're going to, you might let people take advantage of you. Every sort of emotional desire that comes up has a, and maybe this is about the wise mind, but has an opportunity to be expressed in a healthy way. And a lot of times we're going to lose that. And maybe there's a whole relational piece that we lose if we can't be with people. Well, be happy with them, be able to do things with them in an enjoyable way, be empathetic, all these things. So I think the Spock analogy is probably the best way to look at it. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's kind of numb. It's, it's, yes. it's, it loses, it loses flavor. We lose the intelligence of our emotions basically mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and how it's meant to guide us. Yep, Definitely. And, and to add to that, no, I'd go back and change. I'd tweak your language when you Please, said that emotions aren't always bad. I would say, actually, they're never bad. Emotions they're never are bad. Always, yeah. Guys, emotions never- are never bad. <laughs> yeah. Yes. They're, they're, there, they're there for a reason and they all serve a purpose. Right. So emotions are just emotions. They're what you're mm-hmm. experiencing. They're not bad or good. Right. The expression of them sometimes leads to consequences that are positive or negative for a person's life yeah and it might be wise to learn to regulate so that you can have more emotions that are or expressions of emotions that are aligned with your values but certainly on it from a mindfulness space we're never trying to suppress or say don't have these or don't access these we're trying to be wise basically right. with that and and so on one side of the emotion regulation puzzle or problem we have just a lack of expression a lack of access in a conscious way and there are consequences to that for people. So what's one way on that side of things that people who are feeling numb, who aren't sure what they're feeling, who maybe aren't noticing any feelings and they're concerned about that. You know, I see a, a child, I don't feel anything. I see my partner, I don't feel love. What, what do we do to start to repair that a little bit? I think probably I would say the way I would start working with someone who's more over-controlled in that way would be mindfulness. So getting people to, you know, engage in those positive activities that bring up some kind of pleasurable emotion for most people and whether they can feel that feeling right away or not. But, you know, over time, as we get people to practice being mindful in the moment and accepting of whatever their experience is, they are going to learn to connect that pleasurable experience with some kind of pleasurable emotion. Even that emotion, if that emotion just starts off with, you know, a feeling of peace 
or calmness or contentment, you know, something really, we're not aiming for joy or happiness to start off with, right? Um, so some kind of small pleasure. Um, and then, you know, you kind of build your way up from there. So that's going to be different for everybody, of course, depending on what brings that individual pleasure, but, you know, connecting with others, finding some kind of activity or hobby that brings them a sense of pleasurable emotion and so on. So, so you're trying to slow them down a little bit. Uh -huh. It's, you can't do it all at once. How, how can you, your, your first goal is that is to help them contact their life. Yeah. Right. So, so yeah. is implicit in that, that they're not so connected to what's happening in their life? Potentially. I mean, this is going to be different for, for everybody, sure. but that would be one of the theories that I would probably start with is that they just, you know, are they so caught up in their thoughts and they're ruminating and dwelling on things that that's getting in the way of them being able to see what's right in front of them in the present moment. You know, for other people, of course, trauma can can often plays a role, right? So if there's some kind of traumatic events that they've experienced where, there needs to be some kind of trauma work that happens before we're able to maybe do that emotions work, then that would be another piece that needs to be looked at. Um, you know, there might be a fear of, ex of experiencing emotions. When I work with clients with bipolar disorder, there's often a fear of expressing pleasure because pleasure has come along with negative consequences in the past. Um, or again, you know, a client who has been physically punished for being hyper or rambunctious as a child, that could have turned into that fear of feeling pleasurable emotions. So of course we need to do a little bit of that exploratory work as well and assessment mm -hmm. to figure out what's going on for that particular individual. And then we're going to choose the skills that that we need to from our DBT repertoire of skills um, to help that individual learn to get in touch with those feelings and accept them. And what's coming out on a meta level in this conversation is just the nuance is that sure there, there's no <laughs> we're trying to help people generally. But this is a big thing, a difference between education and one-on-one -on -one therapy and support is that one-on-one -on -one therapy and support can go through the details and help you get to one, get, get to why it is the way for you, which uh -huh. is, which is catered to you as an individual. And so it's, I'm seeing this a lot, the way you're expressing yourself is stay away from yes and no, this is this, this is that. It's a very, you're, you're breathing the, the DBT dialectic, which is, I think, right, is constantly pushing between acceptance and change. Thank you for, for, for reminding us all about that as, mm -hmm. as we're going through this. So that's so and in terms of the mindfulness, maybe I'll just ask you a little bit. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a very big term. I've almost look at it, unfortunately, with some cynicism, um, just because it's, you know, mindfulness of mindfulness of everything is mindfulness. You know, you could have mindful eating, sleeping, drinking, mindful, mindfulness, mindful. I mean, it's just it becomes empty um, for me, at least in my experience, or it's oversaturated. So understanding that and using a DBT lens for that, where we're not really focused on the labeled mindfulness, we're focused on a series of interactions and skills. Is there one type of mindfulness skill that you would recommend, especially for people that are having a hard time accessing their emotions? Oh gosh, is there one type? I mean, if somebody's struggling to access emotions, then probably... I mean, there's, again, there's a few different ways that I might go with a client who's struggling to access emotions. It might be um, mindfulness of whatever that pleasurable activity is, as we were just discussing, right? Mindfulness of the emotion as they're experiencing that small amount of pleasure. 
Um, I mean, so I think kind of like tuning in very subtly. Yeah, yeah. Tuning in with acceptance, right? So being in the present moment with that experience and accepting whatever that experience is, instead of trying to get rid of it, avoid it, push it away, ignore it, and so on. Because that's that over-controlledness, right? Okay. So, so in, in, in one way, of course, the activity that they're doing, when you say about being present, how do people do that? Is there, is there a certain way that people are not present? Is there, is it just that you kind of like be, be, pre- I'm trying to do a vi- vi- face of it. Like you just be <laughs> present. How, how do you be present? I'm, yeah, is it like bad? I don't know, but I'm just, I think about it. Like, how do you yeah. be present? I mean, first of all, you, you need to understand and accept that we are not created in a way that allows us to stay fully focused on the present moment 100% of the time, and nor is that the goal, right? Our human brains generate up to 70,000 thoughts in a day. <laughs> so it's pretty impossible to stay in the present moment. But when we're talking about mindfulness, we're noticing, so we're, we're choosing, first of all, when we want to be mindful and what we're being mindful to or of, and we're bringing our attention to that activity, bringing our acceptance to that activity and to whatever experiences come up. And I'll give you an example in just a second. <laughs> um, and then we're noticing when we wander and we're bringing our mind and our, and our acceptance back over and over again. So for example, if I decide that I'm going to engage in this conversation with Noah mindfully, I'm going, so actually a couple minutes ago, I noticed, I thought I heard rain out my, out my window. And so I kind of got distracted a little bit by the rain as Noah was talking. And so I looked out the window and then I brought myself back to the present moment. I redirected my attention, but I also practiced acceptance there. So I didn't judge myself for wandering. I didn't judge the weather for if it is raining i just noticed i wandered oops i've wandered i'm bringing myself back this is the one thing that i'm doing right now i'm just here with noah having this conversation and then probably two minutes from now or two seconds from now sometimes off we go again to something else what what's next on my to-do list or whatever so we notice that we turn our attention back to what we're doing just this one thing in this moment and we bring our our we bring acceptance to that experience and that's mindfulness over and over again so it's it's getting as localized as possible to the experience that you want your attention to be directed to and at the same time it's not having perfect where the thoughts are gone that you're you're living your life you're going to get distracted Mm -hmm. but the other piece that you keep bringing up is the acceptance piece yes and that part of the reason why maybe people lose their mindfulness is because something pops up in their brain or they feel a certain feeling and that's not acceptable. It's not comfortable. So they have to go somewhere else to get right. away from it. And so maybe yeah. just embracing, I, I kind of look at it like just opening your chest a little bit. It's like whatever, whatever's there is there. And I'm, I'm there with it. Yeah. Um, it sounds like that is something that people can do even in small, tiny ways um, when they're not able to, for everybody in general, but when you're not able to access emotions. So that's one side of the equation. And of, of course, this is not reducing this conversation to that's the only thing that you could possibly do. There's a <laughs> lot going on. We mentioned a bunch, bunch of different other things, but let's go to the other side. Mm-hmm. People that are, are, their emotions are dialed up so high that they often especially act out or move into urges or act on urges that 
later, five minutes later, 10 minutes later, a day later, they're like, I can't believe I did that. Yeah. I can't believe I did that. So what's that about? Can you talk to us about that a little bit? Yeah. So that's what, what we refer to as the under-controlled kind of emotion dysregulation, right? Where, where the emotions, you know, we can see the, the emotional distress, right? And this is often, these are the clients that I often work with because it's those problematic behaviors that bring them to therapy. You know, the, the over-controlled people, they often just suffer in silence because like you said, well, what's the big deal if they're just not emotionally experiencing the over-control or under-controlled people, you know, their family is sending them to therapy because, you know, they're so chaotic and, and causing distress around them even, right? At times. Now, of course, these are the two ends of the spectrum. There's a lot of grays in between the over-controlled and the under-controlled. I just want us to keep that in mind. But when we're working, when I'm working with someone who is on that under-controlled side, it's, you know, I think I mentioned some of these behaviors already, the, su the suicidal clients, the individuals who might experience um, a lot of urges to suicide and self-harm or substance use or engage in some kind of disordered eating behaviors, or they're the clients who just lash out a lot at others and again, create not in a judgmental sense, I don't mean this word, but drama, there's a lot of just chaos in their lives on a regular basis. So a lot of relational problems and so on. That's what that under-controlledness often looks like to some extent. Right. And so for those people, it floods in. It's too much. There's mm -hmm. not a, an, an ability to. So I, I guess maybe you can slowly just share for a second about in DBT's formulation with, you know, the wise mind, the rational mind and the, sorry, the wise mind, sorry, emotional mind, rational mind, and then wise mind. Right. So are people that are very under-controlled living in the emotional mind? Uh, to an extent, yes. I mean, they still have times, they still have even moments sometimes where they're in wise mind and when they're in reasoning mind even as well. Um, but for the most part, that's what a client, an under-controlled client would likely say is that I don't have a wise mind. I'm always in my emotion mind, although that's not exactly true. <laughs> yeah, that that's an emotional reaction maybe. Exactly, um, <laughs> right. Emotional reaction. So. Yeah. That, that emo so people that are experiencing that very heavily, of course, I'm sure that you are also doing mindfulness of maybe mm -hmm. part of and when you said, if you can't name it, Dan Siegel, if you can't, if you can't name it, you can't tame it. So mm -hmm. there must be some sort of regulatory experience of just being able to give language before lashing out. Cause people, you know, children, they lash out, they don't mm -hmm. have an, a, a voice for it. So is there yeah. a part of emotion regulation for the under controlled archetype here mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that can use just naming and emotional you know awareness to to regulate yeah i mean some people can go straight to working on just naming what what is the emotion i'm experiencing right now looking at the function of that emotion so again understanding that emotions serve a purpose so why has this emotion come up right now so that then they can get to problem solving so accepting validating their emotion and then maybe saying to themselves is there something i can do to bring down the intensity of this emotion Often, again, the, the people that I work with, because they're so dysregulated, they can't go straight to naming because they just, they, their cognitive abilities, it's almost like they shut down, like the thinking part of the brain, it, they're not able to access it right away. 
when the emotions are that big. Um, so there's some great skills that I use with people who can't get to that wise-minded place right away to start thinking about, you know, what is this emotion and why is it here and so on. And these are the tip skills, the DBT tip skills. My favorite one, actually. Actually, I've, hold on. I'm going to stop you. It's yeah. tip. It's tip. It's, tip it's, F, it's F tip. Yes. It's I was tip. just going to say, I've actually renamed them as uh, the F tip skills. Yes. Because the F stands for forward bend, which is my own skill that I put before the, the rest of Marsha Linehan's tip skills nowadays. Yes. And it's a skill that I stumbled on a few years ago myself, which I absolutely love. It's just a forward bend. So if you know yoga, the yoga pose forward bend. And if you don't know yoga, you're just bending over and trying to touch your toes and not worrying if you can't touch them, by the way. But the idea here is that being in a position or a pose where your head is below your heart activates our parasympathetic nervous system, which helps us to slow down and feel calmer. And it's a really great way of quickly re-regulating our emotions. So that's often kind of step one when I'm working with those under controlled individuals, we, we need them to be able to kind of at least take a step towards that internal wisdom, slow themselves down a little bit so that they can get to the naming and what comes after that. So doing a forward bend is a great way of getting a little bit re-regulated. So really for people that can't even get to the labeling, the naming, have mm-hmm. the slowness, that's, that would even fall into the distress tolerance. It's too, it's too extreme for yeah. them. It's too hard. And so these things get rid of um, trying to do anything intellectually or cognitively. Mm-hmm. You want to just do something in the body. Yeah. This is what we actually call bottom up regulating. Yeah. So, and so bottom up meaning from the body, we, so we start with the body and that helps us to regulate upwards, getting our thinking back online versus top down, which would be, we start with trying to change our thinking and that helps to regulate the rest of us, including our body. So this is a bottom up kind of strategy. And just as a calls notes, just so that they're even just thrown across the room Mm -hmm. here or the the room, yeah. the, the conversation. What are the other, what does yeah, tip stand tip for? Skills. Yeah. I was hoping you would ask that Noah, cause I didn't want to leave that hanging. <laughs> um, so the rest of, so the tip skills, the T stands for tipping the temperature of your face with cold water. Now I'd like to just, I'm not going to go through all these extensively cause I know we don't have time, but if you're planning on looking into these skills, the tip skill is really important to know that you can only do it if you don't have problems with your heart with eating disorder behaviors, and if you're not taking beta blocker medications. Um, But it basically is about submersing your face in cold water to activate a a dive response to help us re-regulate. The I stands for intense exercise. So most people know that you know, when we're feeling really distressed and we exercise in an intense way. So cardiovascular kind of exercise, getting your heart going, that helps us to feel calmer afterwards. Um, and the, the P, first piece, there's two P's in tip. First P stands for paced breathing, which is another of my favorite go-tos where we're focusing on making our exhale longer than our inhale. That also activates the parasympathetic nervous system and helps us calm down. And the last one, stand, the last P stands for paced, uh, sorry, paired muscle relaxation, uh, which is a uh, relaxation um, technique, progressive muscle relaxation paired with that paced breathing. And again, that activates the parasympathetic nervous system. Right. So we have some things that are just, it's too much, just, you know, walk yeah. to the bathroom, grab a basin of 
but from again with the conditions that were mentioned walk grab the laundry base uh you know that circuit what do you call it a laundry base grab a bowl and just go for it and according <laughs> yeah. to the um to dr linehan it should be about 10 degrees celsius or 35 degrees fahrenheit are those the same thing i don't know i, I, I have no idea actually that makes no sense i don't know figure I, it out i tell it, my it, clients i tell my clients just fill it up with with water as cold as it'll go because okay. tap water doesn't typically get let's that just cold be anyways. cold water yeah and, and it and, doesn't need to be icy yeah and and or my favorite is jump to a cold lake and enjoy that <laughs> if you can get there somehow that um, will actually activate the dive reflex absolutely <laughs> oh it's great but obviously then you have to get in the car that's a whole other thing yeah uh, or the walk or i don't know okay so we have that and now i want to ask you for the purposes of our time here, one of my things that I use a lot with clients, and I want to hear you explain it as best as you can, is opposite action. Uh, mm-hmm. For people that are in the under, what's the word that you used? Underregulated under, or undercontrolled? Uh, undercontrolled, strong emotional responses, which lead to problematic behaviors in their personal and relational life. Mm-hmm. One thing that I always try to help people do is opposite action, which is they're going to get to that awareness piece, be able to label what's going on, then label the desire they're having, and then ask themselves, what should I do next? Mm-hmm. So can you tell us about this opposite yeah. action idea? Yeah, opposite action is a great skill. The idea behind opposite action is that emotions love themselves. And so emotions create urges in us that when we act on those urges, they keep the emotion going and potentially even make the emotion stronger. So the idea with opposite action is that we wanna interrupt that cycle so that by not acting on the urge and in fact, by doing the opposite of what the emotion is telling us to do, we will actually reduce the intensity of the emotion. So for example, if I am feeling anxious, this is if you've ever done any kind of therapy for anxiety, you probably have heard of exposure therapy. Um, this is basically opposite action for anxiety. So the, the key here is you label the emotion. Now, you, again, as Noah said, you have to be able to name the emotion accurately. So you identify your I'm feeling anxious or fearful. You identify the urge. Oh, by the way, so you label the emotion. And in the course, I'd like to just be really clear here. In the course of labeling the emotion, you are validating or accepting mm. the feeling. So there's no judgment about the feeling that you're I can't, experiencing. I'm feeling this bad. It's more, this is what I'm feeling. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, and then you label the urge, as you mentioned as well, Noah, what's the urge that I'm having? So with anxiety, it's often to avoid a situation, or if you're already in the anxiety provoking situation, the urge is to escape and flee that situation. So that's the urge. And then you figure out what's the opposite. What do I need to do here so that I'm not feeding into the urge, uh, sorry, feeding into the emotion of anxiety. So again, with anxiety, it's to stay in the situation. If you're already there, not escape. Or um, if the urge is to avoid, it's to feel the fear and do it anyways, as they say, right? So that would be using opposite action with fear or anxiety. But the good news with this skill, and this is one of the great things about DBT and the skills we teach, is that this is a very generalizable skill where you can bring it to any emotion that you want to decrease the intensity of. So you can use this emotion with feelings of shame, or this um, skill rather, with feelings of shame, with anger, with um, if 
let's say, uh, again, if you do have bipolar disorder, or if you know that there are times where your pleasurable emotions get a little bit out of control and cause and get you into trouble. Lust, for example, is a great example here, right? So when you know that you have an emotion that's that's going to get in the way and potentially have negative consequences, you can potentially use the skill to reduce the emotion. It's one of those things that once you see it, it's everywhere. Yeah. All, all the time we're faced with decisions mm-hmm. that are one way or the other. And oftentimes they're emotionally driven in some yeah. capacity. And so learning that we can make decisions that are the opposite of what we're feeling, that we don't have to follow our desires is very freeing for people. Mm-hmm. And it also, I think also challenges an implicit idea that we all share that venting or something is the best mm. decision mm-hmm. to do. For example, mm-hmm. from a, from, if we conceptualize this from a DBT lens, you get angry mm-hmm. and you want to vent now or yell or scream or get your voice heard or something. And now maybe sometimes for some people in some context, there's a place to do certain things, but you're increasing the emotion. You're not decreasing it. And so, you know, one of um, a rabbi that, uh, that I've done some learning, learning with over the years said that the worst advice he ever heard was that people should never go to bed angry. And, and of course, God willing, the person that you're angry with, you can talk to them in the morning. And when you wake up in the morning, oh, you didn't do anything, but suddenly you're not as emotionally charged. Maybe you can have a better conversation. Sometimes what opposite action is going to do is just give you some space Yeah. to let the emotions dial down. Maybe the emotion is the strongest. It's at an 100 right in the heat of things. And opposite action is just delaying the response or event again, muting it or helping you mm-hmm. do something different than what you're doing, which is leading to these behaviors that are causing problems. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Um, actually, so I love your, your rabbi's um, piece of advice there. And uh, so opposite action with anger, we've probably all heard that thing too, about when you're feeling angry, get yourself out of the, out of the space where the anger is being maintained, right? So leave the situation that's causing the anger. And that is exactly opposite action, right? Now, the thing is, you do have to come back and address that usually at some point. <laughs> so we don't want that to turn but into in a sober state. In a sober it, state. Yes, yes. So to speak. Exactly. It, it, yeah. It, yeah. So th- it's one of those things that, and, and again, there's obviously a way to do it. You don't just run away. You might say, look, uh-huh. I'm going to do something really bad right now that I regret if I continue to stay in this conversation, if I continue. So let's take space. Let's take an hour, two, three, four, five, whatever it is. And just then maybe come back to it. Yeah. In DBT, we refer to it as gently avoiding. Gently avoiding. Okay. Gently avoiding. So that's one way to to tone things down. And what do you notice for people when you help your clients learn that they don't have to make these kinds of decisions anymore? Mm what do you see positive for them? Are, are their identity in some way positively changed? How, how does it impact people? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you used the word a minute ago, it's freeing for people, right? Now, the, let's also be clear that it's often really difficult for people as well, because depending on how long they've been stuck in these um, patterns of behavior, you know, changing any pattern for for most human beings is pretty difficult. But, you know, it can, when you think about the amount of chaos that certain people, you know, that people are living in in certain ways, 
It can reduce the chaos. It can improve their relationships when they're no longer acting so impulsively and from their emotions. It improves their self-esteem and self-respect because they see, you know, that they're working towards their goals in different ways. So it just, it, it's freeing and it helps them move towards a healthier, happier, or at least more contented life. Aligned with their values, uh, exactly. aligned with who they want to be. So I'll tell Rabbi Katz maybe, um, well, I actually haven't spoken to him in a while, but I can let him, I can, at least his idea is, is DBT approved. So, you know, we're, we're, again, this is a big topic. There's a lot of nuance. Every single situation requires its own attention, its own, you know, looking at the functional piece of things, the function of the emotion, everything, everybody's different, but hopefully through this conversation, we've learned a couple of ways, uh, both for the over control and the under control to hopefully make better decisions to have a more fil- fulfilling experience and help f- and hopefully to know when it's wise to act on emotions when it's wise not to. Um, but again, we can't reduce it all to one conversation. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you want to tell students that are listening to this right now, as we finish this up, just a word of hope or something that you think might be meaningful for them? I think just probably if you're listening to this podcast, there's a reason and uh, that hopefully you see that emotions, while they can be really tumultuous and painful, that they do serve a purpose, that we need them, that they often, you know, um, help us to survive and they help us in, in a lot of different ways. Um, and so there is light at the end of the tunnel. You can learn ways to regulate emotions more effectively if that's an issue that you've been dealing with and you can increase the quality of your life. So yeah. Thanks, Noah. Thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure to speak with you. you and as well. we will link um, many of the books and all the other resources. Uh, Sherry's on, constantly teaching, writing, helping people. So thank you so much. And it was such a pleasure to speak with you. You too. Thank you. And of course, a disclaimer. This podcast and all of our mental health learning and educational content is not therapy and is not a replacement for therapy. Please seek professional help if needed. Go to www.resolve2vs.ca to get the support you need. And that's all for now. We hope this was helpful in some small way. If you like our content, please subscribe and give us a five-star review wherever you are listening. Make sure to keep updated with all of our content on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. And of course, come check us out at www.resolve, that's resolve with two Vs, .ca to learn more about how our services can support your needs. Till next time, take care. Theme song for this podcast is done by the band Mokuse no Maguro in their song Midnight Empty Street. <laughs>